Yo! What's going on, everybody? Welcome back. It is a brand new episode of Liam's First Look. Of course, we are going over UFC 296. It is a big pay-per-view event. We got a ton of fights to break down. And honestly, we've got stacked action from the bottom of the card to the top of the card. And today on the show, we're going to be doing my first look at the card. So what that means is that by bets and banter on Thursday... We're going to have a lot more clear reads. I'm going to do more tape study. But what we want to do is go through some of the trends, go through some of the preliminary research, go through our top line thoughts on these fights, starting, of course, with the main event like we always do on First Look. So if you're new here, welcome aboard. Appreciate you guys being here. Make sure you drop a like on the video so other people can help find the stream along the way. And without further ado, let's start talking about this main event of the evening. If you guys don't follow me on Twitter, at Fights then you may not have seen, I did post that these guys have been on a serious, you know, over trend, basically the last couple fights that they've been having, these are two welterweights, right? So typically in the welterweight division, we're thinking we're ending over 50% of the time inside the distance. Um, but that hasn't been the case for these guys. There's been some finishes, of course, but they've been round five finishes when they have materialized. I'm obviously talking about the Kamaru Usman finish against Colby Covington, but also that Leon Edwards finish against Kamaru Usman. Both of those took place in the fifth round. So these guys have been starting round five every time out in their recent bouts. I was thinking maybe we could be due for some regression in this bout. You know, maybe when you've got 270 pound fighters, there could be a chance that this fight finishes at a higher rate. And so I did notice that, um, you know, it's heavily chalked to go the distance, heavily chalked to go over in this spot. And I always wonder to myself, you know, are we due for some regression? But in any case, we're looking at two guys here that both have, you know, different styles of fighting, right? Leon Edwards is a lot more technical, a lot more cold, a lot more calculated. He's a guy that goes out there and picks his shots and he's very particular. You know, I think he's a sophisticated fighter. I think sometimes people don't give him enough credit for the things that he does technically uh, to prevent people from dominating him. You know, he got beat by Kamaru Usman way back in the day, the first time they fought. Some people don't realize it's a trilogy between these men. They fought way back in the day. Leon took the L there. He went on a long win streak, then got back to that rematch with Kamaru Usman where he head kicked him. And then obviously they had the trilogy bout earlier this year where he was able to get that, uh, you know, closing uh, of the book with the rivalry. And he was able to get the win there two to one in that series career over Kamaru Usman. Now on the other side of things here, We've got a guy in Leon Edward, or excuse me, in Colby Covington, who's going to be a pressure wrestler, right? This is a guy who was an All-American at the Division I level in college, and we've seen that he's had a lot of success in the UFC, but he's been very inactive in recent years. We've seen that Colby Covington has taken a real tick down in this level of competition, but it's obvious why. He was waiting for a title opportunity. It seems like he had some assurances from the company that he was going to get said title opportunity if he waited. So he's waited. You know, he's sat on a couple of wins, uh, but he's also done favors for the company at times along the way, you know, stepping up to take some fights and also headlining pay-per-views when he was not in championship setting. So I think of a guy like Colby Covington as a attraction for fans. I think of him as a guy that can, uh, you know, go out there and do some media, get some attention, positive or negative. You know, the UFC is happy to get all the attention that they can get. 
And I think of Leon Edwards as a guy who needs a foil. You know, he needs somebody that's going to sell the fight. One of the things that was kind of noteworthy about the Kamaru Usman and Leon Edwards fight was that there wasn't a tremendous build to it. What made it such a big fight was that Leon was able to get the upset. You know, leading into that first fight, I don't think there was quite as much hype. But leading into the fight in England, I think the fight sold itself. It was, you know, the ultimate resolution of a long-term conflict between two of the all-time, uh, you know, welterweights of their era, right? And when I'm looking at Colby Covington, he's really trying to stake his claim among them. He's a guy that's come short in these title opportunities before. He's a guy that stepped up at this level many times, and he's beaten UFC champions. You know, he absolutely dusted Tyron Woodley when they finally got in there. But you can poke holes at times in the resume of Colby Covington because he got a couple guys past their prime. You know, you could do a little bit of the same to Leon Edwards when he fought Bilal Muhammad. The fight doesn't come to a, a natural conclusion, right? It's a no contest. And that is actually what breaks up his fight starts round five streak. Since Leon Edwards been in five round fights, the only one that did not start round five is that one with Bilal Muhammad that ended in a no contest. So just looking at this guy, I think that um, we've seen growth in the game of Leon Edwards over time. We see that he works with solid training partners in England, uh, but archetypally, it's not an easy thing to do to go, uh, you know, transition your game to defend against an American style wrestler whose game is pressure, whose game is persistent volume takedowns over the duration of a bout. Now, some of the questions that I have coming into this bout, can Colby Covington sustain the same pace? You know, we got to be realistic about the fact that he's going to be almost 36 years of age coming into this spot. We know historically he's had great cardio. However, whose cardio broke in the first Kamaru Usman fight, I actually feel like Colby Covington, mostly because of damage, was the one who slowed down in that instance. I think that when you look at a guy like Colby Covington, he could push an extensive five-round pace, but even the Masvidal fight had some moments of doubt, a little bit of moments of, uh, you know, uh, intrigue on the feet, let's say, where Masvidal was able to create some damaging moments and back Colby up. But Masvidal himself was so fatigued that he was unable to follow up. I think one of the things that we noticed about Leon Edwards is that even when he was exhausted, uh, you know, he was fighting at altitude. He was fighting in Salt Lake City, Utah. He had been dominated um, you know, he he won the first round, obviously, in the rematch with Kamaru, but then he had been dominated for multiple rounds in a row, uh, you know, two, three, four rounds of just getting taken down against the fence, dominated in some of those positions, and really made to work at a high rate. The one thing that we know about Kamaru and Colby, based on their dynamic, Kamaru was stronger than Colby. You know, I, I do think that that was clear in the fights that they had. I think it's the reason why Colby showed a lot of respect to Kamaru's wrestling and didn't try to wrestle with him. He tried to strike with uh, Kamaru instead because Colby realized, man, this guy's really strong. I shouldn't try and wrestle with him. I think we saw Leon Edwards as strong as shit uh, because he was able to take down Kamaru Usman in that first round. Um, you know, Colby fought him. He wasn't able to take him down, right? But Leon, I think the element of surprise and that strength, that physicality, the size of his body, he was able to get to that body lock and trip Kamaru down to the ground. You see that Leon is very diligent about his positioning. Oftentimes, when he's caught in a clinch against the fence, he is looking to his corner. Same thing happens when he goes down to the ground. I think that there's a moment of hesitation for Leon where he gets put in these bad spots. 
but then he could be coached through it very quickly and react against guys that are high level. Cause we saw Kamaru take him down big takedown, uh, you know, elusive shot gets in on a single leg, snap down, crack down position. He had multiple ways to finish. And so there were times he even got one where he uh, snatches a single leg, runs the pipe. Leon never saw it coming, sits him right to his butt. But what we saw was Leon did such a good job. If you guys notice, uh, it's a constant refrain in that fight that he has uh, with Usman where he's taking the C grip to the wrist of Usman across his own body. And he was just preventing Kamaru from getting two hands locked together. You know, in wrestling, uh, in traditional American style wrestling, the, the kind that you do in high school, uh, you know, you can't lock your hands together, right? Because it's such an advantage. If I was able to lock my hands, I'd be able to hold down most people. And so when you're a wrestler, uh, you want to get to that Khabib style position. You want to lock your hands. Same thing. If you look at the uh, visuals of Bryce Mitchell taking down Dan Ige, how's he able to lift up a guy so strong and, you know, with such a level of resistance? Well, it's easy. He had his hands locked. When you have your hands locked, you could be really strong. And what we saw from Leon in that Kamaru fight, uh, especially the trilogy match, that third fight in England, he did a very good job preventing Kamaru from getting two hands locked together. And I think that that was the biggest difference maker for Leon. Here's the other thing. I think Leon is a very smart guy. I think he's a very diligent um, preparer for fights. I think that what we're going to see from Leon is a guy that shows up in incredible shape. I think he understands the assignment here in Colby Covington. Um, and I think that he's going to try and make sure that he's crossed all his T's and dotted all his I's in terms of the wrestling and the grappling defense here. What I think about Colby Covington is very impressive. It's his ability to recover in grappling situations. There's many times where people have gotten him in bad spots um, in grappling situations. Uh, but what we've always seen from Colby, and I, I think that this is something I found in my own experience. Uh, grappling is that when you come from a wrestling background, there's times when you can just make it a wrestling match again out of nowhere, you know, where there were times in that fight where uh, Colby ended up in a bad position against Masvidal where Masvidal's like trying to, you know, get into a neon belly position and he's trying to pass the guard and he's trying to lock up a, uh, a choke. And then all of a sudden Colby bucks him off and rolls and he's on a single leg and then he's back on top. And there were so many times in the fight where he was able to make that happen. And I think that that's Colby's gift. You know, Colby has an ability to extend wrestling exchanges, to make people continue to wrestle him when they don't want to, to tire them out in some of those exchanges, and also to do damage while they're in compromised positions. You know, unlike a lot of wrestlers, I think what stands out about Colby Covington is his willingness to throw ground and pound, to throw strikes, to try and get off on volume, to make sure that the referees uh, and the judges understand that he is out there to fight and not just out there to wrestle. And I do think that it, that has helped him uh, in terms of the judges' scorecards and other things throughout the course of his career. But when I look at a Leon Edwards, I do think he's going to be prepared for a lot of what Colby brings to the table. So it's incumbent on Colby to be able to compete on the feet in this fight, to be able to make Leon work at a pace rate that he's not comfortable with, and to make sure that his cardio is solid to go for the full 25 minutes. Because Leon, for better or for worse, has been the much more active guy of late. He's been the guy getting in there and getting tested. And I think that at times in the past, 
the biggest Achilles heel for Leon Edwards has been a lack of focus in big moments and big opportunities. Think of why the Nate Diaz fight isn't a celebrated uh, win for Leon Edwards. It's because in the last moments of the fight, the fleeting moments, he, he kind of just lets the fight get away from him for a second. And Nate blasts him on the chin and puts the fighting in doubt. But he was so up on the scorecards that it's obvious Leon Edwards is a much better fighter than Nate Diaz, but he just had that moment of lapse, right? He just let that go for a second. And I think that when I'm looking at Leon Edwards, I do wonder um, if he can maintain that composure here for the full 25 minutes, because if he can, I think he's going to be an absolute handful for Colby Covington as well, because the damage that Leon's able to do is significant when he gets off on his shots. He's very accurate with his strikes that he chooses to throw. We saw that last time out against Usman. He was very precise with the shots that he threw. And he also can dice you at every level of the body with his strikes. We've seen Leon Edwards land massive low kicks uh, that hurt people, uh, that get people off balance, that affect the way that they stand. And we've also seen him go to the body against Usman and get him uncomfortable several times uh, in, in all their fights, really, by mixing up those body kicks. And then the body kick opens up the head kick. And that head kick is what closed the show against Kamaru Usman. It's what got him his big finish. We've also seen Leon one time in the past in the UFC get a big finish with the hands as well, a rapid, fast knockout with his hands. He's got good hand speed when he commits to his combination. So I think this is a great fight. I think it's a great classic style clash, but the younger uh, guy in this spot is Leon Edwards by a pretty considerable margin. He is the bigger welterweight in this spot uh, by a few inches in terms of height, in terms of reach. So I think that he's got a lot of things going for him in terms of things that are working against him here. Uh, he's got to fly over to Vegas, right? Uh, I do think that there's a decent chance that it could be a pro uh, Colby Covington crowd in Las Vegas. But, you know, I think there's a lot up for grabs in this spot. And Leon Edwards, for me, has been a very bankable commodity in his recent performances. He made me a ton of money. I'll always be a fan of the guy. However, when it was plus 300 against Kamaru Usman, that was one wager. But now minus 165, minus 175, whatever it is against Colby Covington, that for me is a, a much different wager. Right, because I think he can win this fight. I think he's the more skilled guy. But I think that even in a best case scenario, this is probably going to be a difficult fight for him, where he's got to fend off a lot of takedowns, where he's got to work really hard. Nobody's really made an easy out of Colby Covington, save for Warley Alves in a fight where um, you know Colby was admittedly very injured going into that fight. So I think it's a great fight. I think it's extremely compelling matchmaking. Um, I do think that. You know, I get why people are taking a dog shot on Colby Covington in this spot. For me, I'm not going to be doing so, at least not right now. Um, I'm going to let the research be my guide here. Uh, I will do the tape study a little bit more. I will uh, confess that for most fights, I didn't do the tape study yet. For this fight, I did go back and rewatch each of their most recent fights. That's why I had some things, um, you know, to note in terms of Colby Covington, number one, was very aggressive with the submission threat in that last fight against Masvidal. Perhaps that was out of, uh, you know, revenge, aggression, wanting to get one over uh, on this uh, older roommate of his. But we did see a much more aggressive submission threat from Colby Covington in that fight. But like I said, 
when he got aggressive with the sub attempts, it did open up some reversals for Masvidal. And I believe Masvidal's a black belt, but frankly, if you put Masvidal and Leon Edwards out there to grapple, I would take Leon Edwards with some confidence there. I think he's stronger. I think that he could be more physical. So for me, the grappling match between these two could be very interesting. Um, and we have seen Leon Edwards get to dominant positions on Usman, something we did not see from Colby. And I think why that was a, a, a plausible scenario is the size. So I do think that there are, are um, you know, there's a world in which Leon Edwards takes down Colby Covington. I think that would blow people's mind, but I could really see that happening. I don't think that that's a, um, you know, a likelihood, let's say, but I just think that that's something that we can't count out here uh, because I do think that Leon's a physical guy. He's very good in the clinch and he lands big knees. So if he can land a big knee, get Colby to bend over a little bit and whip him over to the ground, I wouldn't be that surprised um, at, at some point. So I think it's going to be a competitive fight. Uh, I wouldn't be stunned if we needed to see uh, the judges in this one, because like I said, both these guys have been prolific starts round five uh, fighters, but I also just worry that we could see some regression here. So for me, I'm looking at uh, potentially betting violence and hoping for the best here. Uh, but I haven't I haven't decided how I'm going to attack the main event yet. And I feel like I don't need to play this main event. I feel like I could sit back and watch with some popcorn and hopefully already have a lot of profit in my pocket uh, by that point in the evening that I'm just sit, sitting there enjoying the fight for what it is, which is a great matchup between two of the best welterweights on the planet. But for me, I like to bet on activity, and it is tough for me uh, knowing that Colby's been a little inactive, but stylistically, it seems like a dogger pass situation. Next up, we've got Alexandre Pantoja taking on Brandon Royval. We've got a flyweight title fight. That means we've got two title fights on this card. Should be an absolute banger of an event. And when I'm looking at this one, this fight is fireworks on paper. This is a rematch of a fight where I did bet on Alexandre Pantoja. He did get the win, as a matter of fact, against Brandon Royval. That was three fights ago for him in the UFC. That was back in 2021. And he was able to get the submission in round two. Rear naked choke was able to take the back there. Prolific back taker, elite world-class jiu-jitsu from Pantoja, the cannibal. However, when I'm looking at, um, you know, I played Brandon Royval. He's a guy that's impressed me, especially on this recent run of performances. You know, uh, I did bet him back against Kaikar France um, in 2020. It was one of my early bets that I was really proud of because he was a plus 190 underdog. And I just saw a scrappiness, a grittiness, a toughness, a, a, um, a wildness that was going to trouble somebody like Kaikar France. You know, the spinning attacks, the ability to get in your face, push a pace, throw a lot of strikes, and not care about what's coming back. You know, some guys that are hard to fight are guys that don't care about what happens to them. You know, and Brandon Royval, for better or for worse, seems like a guy who's pretty content to kill or be killed in his fights. You know, um, he seems like a guy to me that knows that he can go out there and break any man, that he could hurt anybody, that he could catch them in a sub. And that when he is hurt and rocked, he's still dangerous uh, because we've seen at times, you know, he got stunned by Kaikara France. I thought, you know, he dropped down to a knee, but Kaikara France got excited, tried to come in, follow up. And he said, hold this spinning elbow, bang. And it's an incredible series in that fight. Uh, and you just see that Brandon Royval is offense, offense, offense. And, you know, sometimes the key to a good defense is a good offense, right? Keeping that pressure on somebody. And, 
for all the things that Pantoja does well and everything that he did well in that fight, I did think that it was a fight that tested his cardio. I did think it was a fight where he really needed to get Roy Val out of there because Roy Val was fighting at a pace that Pantoja seemed like he could not sustain. Um, and I didn't think that was true for Roy Val. So that's what makes this a fascinating rematch. You have Pantoja with the newly crowned champion mentality. I do think that that could um, build his confidence. You know, a guy who already has worked very hard to get to where he's at, a guy who's built up his career in all the right ways, taken on a lot of tough fights, a lot of difficult challenges. And I think of a guy like, um, you know, Alexandre Pantoja, um, you know, as a similar uh, archetype in some ways to a Mateus Nicolau, except that he's much more durable, right? Um, when you look at a Mateus Nicolau, he's got very good jujitsu and he has pretty good striking. But uh, when you look at Pantoja, he's a guy that's been historically impossible to finish, right? All five of his losses coming by way of decision. I think people, uh, you know, wondered aloud, could he go five rounds against somebody like Brandon Moreno? People thought it's impossible. No way he could go five rounds. He went five rounds in that spot. He was able to do it. So again, more power to him in that. Um, you know, it was a great showing. But Roy Val, you know, he's been beaten. When the fights go to the cards, you know, he's a guy with a pretty salty two and four record. But when the fights end inside the distance, he's coming up aces way more often than not 13 and two in fights that end inside the distance for Raw Dog Rival and Pantosha uh, and Brandon Moreno, two champions, the only guys to ever finish him. And they were both in the UFC. Pantosha got that rear naked choke and Brandon Moreno just slammed him on the ground and hurt his shoulder. Um, but I think that Brandon Rival has gotten a little bit better since that time. Um, you know, very close fight, obviously, against Rogerio Bontarin, but Rogerio Bontarin is a guy that is bricked up, uh, good grappler, you know, um, solid striking, but his chin just let him down at times in the UFC. And Roy Val, you know, was kind of trying to get back on track there. But then he goes out against Matt Schnell and gets the quick tap in round one, the the double tap, and then he gets the Mateus Nicolau knockout in the first round. So this is a guy that has proven to be dangerous for a flyweight, many, many finishes, submitted Tim Elliott, who's also shown himself to be a dangerous grappler in this division. So I think there's a lot to like about Brandon Royval as an underdog in this spot. You know, uh, a guy who's five and two in the UFC compared to uh, 10 and three for Alexandre Pantoja. So a lot more experience on the Pantoja side here. But I, I do think that Pantoja, poured out the jug a little bit in that last fight. You know, he really spent a lot of himself, I thought, to get that win against Moreno. He was tired. He was exhausted, but he just kept pushing and finding a way to win. Could he do that again? Absolutely. Anything's possible. It's fight sports. But when I'm looking at this guy, Brandon Royval, I'm just saying to myself, man, this is a guy you don't want to fight because he's going to keep pushing forward. He's going to keep bringing the ruckus to you. And a lot of these fights that he's lost, he, they've been three rounds, right? And now he's going five rounds and let's see if he's got the cardio to do it. But I think he's going to push a, a pace that Pantoja cannot sustain. So the question will be, can Pantoja get him out of there? I think Pantoja has multiple paths to the finish. He's got knockout power in his hands. He's got the ability to get a submission on anybody. But I think the same thing is true of Brandon Royval. You know, would I be stunned if he got a knockout in this spot? 
No, I wouldn't be totally stunned. He's just showed off his power again in his last fight. He showed off that even when he's hurt, he's a junkyard dog and he could finish you against Kai Kara France. So this is a guy that I think carries power for a flyweight. He's got a big frame. He's awkward. He throws from angles people don't expect and he hits people very hard. He commits hard to his strikes. He throws a lot of weight behind them. And in terms of the submission game, listen, Pantoja is a much more credentialed grappler. I think that when they're both fresh, he is the better grappler. He is more slick. He is more technical. But I think of Brandon Royval as an opportunistic submission threat, a guy that could catch you from anywhere, a guy that can make better grapplers pay if they make one simple mistake. And I also think of him as a guy that can outpace you and make you work harder than you want to. And, you know, the one thing that doesn't matter, um, you know, in grappling when you're super tired is skill. Because if you have all the skill in the world, but you're completely exhausted and you can't access your skill, then it doesn't matter. And we've seen it before with Adolfo Vieira getting submitted. And I just think that Alexandre Pantoja is a, a mortal man. You know, he's a great fighter and a very skilled fighter and a world-class Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. But none of those things make you immune to getting choked. Amanda Nunes, the women's GOAT. She got choked, you know. Uh, Jan Blachowicz wins the title in impressive fashion. He got choked. Glover Teixeira, he's a great grappler. He got choked. Anybody could get choked, baby. Um, it, it's a fight at the end of the day. So um, you can't tough guy a choke. And I do think Brandon Royval is live to get the choke here. I think the same thing is true of Alexandre Pantoja. So I like violence in this spot for sure. And right now I'm leaning towards this underdog, guys. I'm leaning towards the raw dog, Brandon Royval, to get that strep. To get that strap, excuse me, not strep. Excuse me. We we want only good things for Brandon Royval. Uh, so cheers to him. But also cheers to Pantoja because I really like Pantoja. I think he's a great guy. I think he's a great representative for the sport, a great champion. But you know something? They'd be one and one if uh, Royval gets the win here. Maybe the flyweight division could use another rivalry and a, uh, a new champion to kick off some ruckus for next year. Shout out to my guy, Jimmy the Drunk. In the chat says, I'll be there live, Liam. Cheers. Cheers to that, my brother. We hope you have an absolute great time. Shout out to my guy, Kyle, says, kids a walking W. What an absolute blessing. You know my motive, brother, uh, here to represent for the people. Dixon says, I'm proud of you. Thank you, my man. Uh, Robert says, we'll be watching live. Cheers to you as well, Robert. So thank you. Big Hit Mark is here. Cashville Recon is here. North Ender leaning towards Colby Covington. We got a lot of the regulars in the house. Hope some new people here as well. So if you're new, hit subscribe and make sure that you uh, keep watching because we got a lot of great content to talk about. Like my guy, Shavkat Rachmanov, taking on Steven Wonderboy Thompson. Fascinating fight. And, you know, in this spot, it seems like we've got, uh, you know, a potential changing of the guard here with Shavkat Rachmanov. Dead animals on his head and all. This is a guy that comes to the cage ready to finish fights. He's got a bunch of wins by knockout. He's got a bunch of wins by submission. He has a uh, absolute Rolodex of incredible fights. And the thing that I love personally about Shavkat Rachmanov is that he has a balanced game. What do I mean by that? He can wrestle. He can grapple. He can strike. He can knock you out. He can finish you. And based on what we've seen so far, he can win a decision too. So he doesn't go to decision yet, but he can fight into that third round. He can push you into deep waters and he can make you quit at any point in the fight. He seems to me like an absolute monster and like the last person you'd want to sign to fight right now in the UFC. I one time 
made the fatal mistake of betting against Shavkat Rachmanov. He was going to fight Carlston Harris. Carlston Harris, a big guy, a strong guy, physical, knows how to grapple, knows how to strike. I was like, man, plus 200 in a fight like this, this seems like a lot of volatility with two finishers. There was no volatility. It was all Shavkat Rachmanov. And I think that Shavkat Rachmanov has the capability to make it all Shavkat again this weekend. Wonderboy is a great fighter. He is an excellent tactician on the feet. Very skilled martial artist. He's got incredible kicks. He's got an ability to mix in um, what I would call a very clever mixed martial arts boxing game. So he uses a lot of that karate in and out striking, um, you know, and especially likes to use those kicks to keep distance. But some of the most memorable striking performances from Wonderboy Thompson have been counter boxing performances. Think of the Vicente Luque fight where he's moving in and out of range. And every time Vicente Luque tries to commit to his power shots, he's able to just draw him in and hit him with the big counters. And then he's already out of the way because of that floating kind of karate footwork. So I think that there's a lot um, you know, to, to look back on fondly in the career of Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. But let's talk about um, the facts on the ground, okay? Uh, his last win was over Kevin Holland in a fight where Kevin Holland basically decided not to win, right? Like he didn't grapple, he didn't wrestle, he didn't give any indication that he wanted to make it an advantageous spot for himself. He instead uh, fought like they were buddies because they are kind of buddies, right? Like they have a relationship and they've, um, you know, done commercials together and stuff like they're friendly guys. They like each other. So Kevin went out there to have a fun fight, to put on a war with an old legend, to be a company guy, to put on a main event. And, you know, he was striking on the feet, having fun, but every time he hurt him and anytime he had him in a position where he could take him down, he didn't do it. And then he didn't submit him. And then he let the guy, you know, hurt him later on in the fight and, you know, all power to wonder boy, he did the damn thing. You know, he deserves the credit, but then when he was supposed to fight Michelle Pereira, the bout gets rescheduled once they then have the snafu where Michelle Pereira misses the weight. He says he doesn't want to fight him because he missed weight. I respect it. You know, I think that that's all fair play, but the results are going to be what the results are going to be, right? The company is going to do what they're going to do. And they basically said, okay, you don't want to fight him. Then we're going to give you the toughest fight in the welterweight division right now, which is Shavkat Rachmana, right? Kamzat Jemayev, he went up to 185, so they can't call him anymore. It's Shavkat Rachmana right now um, on the on the top of their dial. And I think that, you know, unfortunately for Wonder Boy, it's not an unwinnable fight, but it's a fight that is really difficult for him to win because you look at Shavkat Rachmanov and what he brings to the table. He is a big guy, extremely big. Let's look at the uh, size comparison here. He's going to have a two-inch reach advantage, a one-inch height advantage, and he is 11 years younger than Stephen Wonderboy Thompson in this spot. So Wonderboy, young, or uh, excuse me, Wonder Man, right? Uh, older guy, a little bit smaller here. And I think he's at a huge grappling disadvantage, like massive. I don't think it's close at all uh, on the ground. I think that in terms of the wrestling, I favor Shavkat massively. Um, I think that in terms of the striking, I would call it at this point in the career a 50-50, um, maybe out of respect, like a 52-48 for Wonderboy. But even then, I'd be lying if I said that. You know, Shavkat is 8-0 career to the knockout. Stephen Wonderboy Thompson you could say whatever you want. He got knocked out by Anthony Pettis. Um, you know, bad, bad, bad 
really bad knockout. So it's a little fluky, right? It could happen to anybody, but he's also 41. And what do we know about fighters that get a little bit older? Right here, Fightnomics. We've got the bookmark page, guys. And it tells us, um, you know, that fighters over the age of 38 are just much more likely to get knocked out. Um, and I think that that's a live possibility here. You know, in the past, I've told you, Shavkat Lachmanov by sub against Neil Magny. And that was an absolute certainty, I felt, because it was the path of least resistance. But Wonder Boy is not an easy guy to submit, right? You look at his career historically, he's 1-0 career to the submission, um, you know, for all intents and purposes. But when I'm looking at this guy, I just know um, that the grappling edge is there for Shavkat. So I think Shavkat, um, you know, is probably going to win the fight inside the distance. And I do think he's probably going to do it by knockout, but we'll see how the fight plays out. Um, you know, it actually opened minus 175, and I regret not taking it, but life goes on, brother. <laughs> life goes on. Shout out to Cashville Rican. So, um, you know, we wish Wonder Boy luck there, but uh, I just think that way too much, too much physicality, too much finishing power, too much instincts, um, too much submission ability, way too much. Give me Shavcat. Next up, guys, we've got <clears throat> Addy Pimblett taking on Tony Ferguson here. So we're going to have a sip of the coffee and break this one down in the lightweight division. El Kakui here is going to be a um, – oh, man. Shout out to our guy, Jimmy the Drunk. He says, you are a one percenter as far as MMA predictors go. A diamond in the rough. I'd put a ring on it. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you big time, my man. Uh, I try and come out here uh, armed with some knowledge and information from watching a ton of fights in my life and, you know, from betting on these things week in and week out for the last several years. So I really appreciate that. And uh, I appreciate the support from everybody who's watching, everybody who tunes in live to support the show. It means the world to me, guys. And uh, we're going to be here rocking with you all the time, no matter what. And there'll be more fights each and every week. So keep on rocking with us. Thank you to a guy like Jimmy who's been rocking with us for a while, man. Appreciate you. But with that being said, let's do it. Let's talk about Tony, El Kukui Ferguson, and Patty the Batty Pimblet. This is a fun one, um, you know, in some ways and a sad one in other ways, right? Tony's going to be the bigger guy here. Almost a four-inch reach advantage in this spot, one-inch advantage in height. But he is going to be... 11 years older than Patty the Batty. Um, and I honestly think that Tony's been looking like a shell of himself lately. Um, and I don't mean to disparage the man. You know, he went out there last time. He hurt Bobby Green. But we just saw Bobby Green get hurt in the very early going of his last fight. He got TKO'd by Islam Mahashev in the first round. He got knocked out by Drew Dober. There has to be some serious questions about whether or not Bobby Green's chin is gone and he's also 37 years of age. You know, uh, he's not a young fighter by any means. He's had like 50 plus professional fights. So I think the UFC tried to give him a winnable fight last time out and it didn't work out. Right. Um, you know, they gave him Bobby Green, older guy, seasoned vet, didn't work out. They gave him Nate Diaz, you know, short notice. He looked terrible in that fight. I don't mean to be disrespectful. Uh, again, you know, I'm just trying to be critically objective in my analysis here. I thought he looked horrible against Nate Diaz. I bet Nate that night at plus money. I could not believe people were steaming the Tony side in that fight. Um, and odds makers, I believe, opened him the dog. It was the, the public that came in the other way. When you look at the um, 
you know, the cancel bout against the leech. I just thank the Lord every day. They didn't make that fight. That would have been a brutal knockout. I believe for the leech, uh, in that spot, Michael Chandler absolutely punted him in the face. Chandler guys, if you've never watched Chandler's whole career, Chandler's got great skill, great offense, but the truth is Chandler's always been a little bit liable to getting hit in the chin. Uh, that, that has kind of been the thing where you get to him at times. And so I do think that, um, you know, him getting buzzed by Tony Ferguson, he kind of gets buzzed and time travels and then comes back in a lot of fights. So, um, I, I'm not going to read too much into that, but again, you're seeing that Tony hasn't completely lost the power. Um, you know, they always say power is the last thing to go. Right. And it looks like Tony is committed to, to being offensive, but at 39 years of age, what is the thing that he can't do anymore? He can't take damage anymore. And that was a, a prerequisite for his fighting style. Really. If you look back, um, you know, against Michael Johnson, he got knocked down, I believe, in that fight in a loss back in the day in a win against Abel Trujillo in 2014. He was knocked down back in the day. Edson Barboza, when he submitted him, he was a bloody mess in that fight. Um, you know, when he uh, when he fought Anthony Pettis and Donald Cerrone, um, you know, there was a lot of damage incurred on, on all sides in those fights. Uh, the Kevin Lee fight wasn't a fight that he got out of unscathed. So you look at all those fights and you say to yourself, man, this guy's taking some damage. But the one where it really just sets apart from all the rest, guys, is the Justin Gaethje performance in 2020. He fought again just six months later, uh, which is a, a mistake. Uh, it was a life-altering beating. I, I don't know another way to put it. Justin Gaethje beat him like a slab of beef for 25 minutes, and it was harrowing to watch. It should have been stopped. There was no crowd, no audience, no ignoring what you were watching. It was just quack, 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 quack all night. Justin Gaethje loading up, you know, just seeing every shot from a mile away, and Tony's not seeing him, and he's just getting cracked over and over. It was horrible, and uh, I, I just don't think he's been the same guy ever since um, in the cage, especially. You know, I do think that as a um, you know, a man, we, we can only wish him the best. We wish him, uh, and his family, the best we're, we're praying for them, obviously, but you just got to call it like you see it. And I haven't seen enough from Tony, uh, to advocate betting on him in a cage fight. Um, at this stage of his career, you look at the names he's lost to, there isn't a bad name in the bunch, but Bobby green is an elder statesman. You know, he is not a, a young, fresh up and coming guy. Nate Diaz, elder statesman, not a young, fresh, up-and-coming guy. Michael Chandler, to some degree, an elder statesman, but he's so athletic, I'm, I'm not going to put him in that category. Benil Dariush, similar things, but what, uh, on his way to being in that category if he was to stick around. Um, you know, Charles Oliveira, he's been around the UFC forever, but he is a, a contemporary elite fighter. Absolutely nothing to take away from that one. And by the way, I bet Charles Oliveira at plus money in that spot. Absolutely insane line. Um, insane, insane, insane line. Two units at plus 140, I think. Just an insane price. But in any case, um, you look at that Justin Gaethje fight. That was the one before that. And Justin Gaethje, while a very good fighter, um, you know, he's a guy that that can also be outgrappled, be outwrestled. And, and there was none of that right? The grappling, the wrestling that Tony tried in that fight was completely unsuccessful. A lot of Tony's wrestling grappling has been from his back in the UFC. And we've seen that's just not conducive to winning fights long-term 
uh, strategically. So I think the problems here are manifold for uh, Tony Ferguson. I, I think that in this fight, he's not the better grappler, unfortunately. Uh, and so I think that he, at best, could be the better striker, a little bit bigger here. Um, but I think that Patty has more power. I think that he's more durable. I think he's more fresh. I think he's faster. Um, and I think he has every advantage to win the fight. So I'm picking Patty Pimblett. And unfortunately, I think he's probably going to knock out Tony Ferguson in brutal fashion. So that's the way I'm seeing it right now. But I'll do a little more research, guys. And, you know, hopefully I change my mind because I, I really like Tony. Um, you know, just as a guy, wish him the best. Um, in terms of how the game hasn't done right by Tony Ferguson, you know, um, didn't make enough money to take all the damage he's taken. Um, it's just a cruel, sick business at times. And everybody used to be a big fan of him. Now everybody kind of leaves him by the wayside and, you know, they'll cheer for him, but I, I feel like they might have to shield their eyes on Saturday. Um, and I just dread the wigs and the, bar stool and all the bullshit and the celebration, but that's kind of just the way that I see it. And on the main card closeout, we've got Vicente Luque taking on Ian Machado Gary and another undefeated fighter here in Ian Gary, 13 and 0 in this welterweight division, taking on former teammate in Vicente Luque, the silent assassin. And Vicente Luque is a, you know, I, I used to call him a death dealer of 170 pounds, you know. He took some time off. He dealt with some some brain injuries, right, which you never want to hear uh, for for a fighter. Um, but he looked like himself in some ways against RDA, but he did look a lot less aggressive. Um, he did still struggle at times with some of the wrestling and the grappling, but he had the physicality and the size to deal with the wrestling and grappling threat from RDA in that spot. I do think that this is a more interesting size uh, dilemma for him because Ian Gary is only two inches, um, you know, smaller in the reach department compared to Vicente Luque, but he's actually going to have a substantial four inch reach advantage here, as well as he's going to be the much younger fighter in this spot. Just recently turned 26 years of age, uh, did Ian Gary. Uh, so he's taking on a 32 year old, who's had a lot more damage incurred over the course of a pretty brutal 20-fight UFC career. So at just uh, 32 years of age, 20 fights for Vicente Luque in the company, that's a brutal schedule. And you look at the losses along the way, you really can't poke many holes. I mean, since 2017, this guy's losses in the UFC have been Leon Edwards, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, Bilal, remember the name Muhammad, and Jeff Neal. And Jeff Neal, uh, I want to just confirm this because I don't want to talk out of my ass, but I believe per UFC stats, Jeff Neal is a Southpaw. And I think Southpaws historically have troubled, um, have troubled Vicente Luque. Yeah, that is true. So Jeff Neal is a Southpaw. And he was absolute trouble for in the striking department for um, for Vicente Luque. E. Gary is not a southpaw, okay? He's an orthodox fighter. So both of these guys fight out of an orthodox stance. 
The striking metrics in this fight, the stats will tell you that Ian Gary uh, is the much better defensive fighter, uh, a little bit more responsible with his defense. It would also tell you that he's a little bit less powerful. Vicente Luque has recorded a ton of knockdowns. Uh, we have seen, you know, Kanan Song did knock down Ian Gary uh, in his UFC career. So it's not like he's been immune to the knockdown. He also got his nose busted up a little bit by Jordan Williams before he got the finish in his UFC debut. But against Daniel Rodriguez, he got the clean knockout there. He absorbed less than 30 significant strikes against Neil Magny, less than uh, 50 significant strikes against Darian Weeks. So we've seen that a lot of times he's able to limit the amount of damage that he takes coming back. Um, and when there's knockdowns being recorded, it does tend to go in the category for Ian Gary. However, on the Vicente Luque side, he got knocked down twice by Jeff Neal. But prior to that, he had knocked down Randy Brown, who's on this fight card twice. Uh, he knocked down Nico Price. He got knocked down by Wonderboy Thompson in a unanimous decision loss uh, back in 2019. He had a knockdown of Derek Krantz. He went one and one in the knockdown category with Brian Barberena. He knocked down and knocked out Jalen Turner in the first round in Jalen's UFC debut. He knocked out Chad Laprie in the first round uh, with a knockdown as well. He knocked down and then submitted uh, Nico Price. So this is a guy who's recorded a, a metric ton of knockdowns in the course of his UFC career. He's also the only man, I believe, in MMA history to knock out Bilal. Remember the name Muhammad. Let me just double check that. Bilal, or uh, Maybe Jeff Neal got him as well. Um, but Bilal has been very difficult to knock out historically. So let's go Bilal Muhammad. His record, yeah, the only knockout loss on Bilal Muhammad's record was against Vicente Luque in that very first round. So this is a guy with very serious wins, with a real, you know, dynamic skill set in my view. And listen, I've been an Ian Gary guy along the way, but there's been some things that have caused me pause, you know, in recent performances. Number one, you're not finishing Neil Magny. Like, are you joking with me or like, is there, was there a problem there? Are you injured? Um, were you thinking you needed to get 15 minutes in? Like that wasn't funny to me. You know, I, as somebody that bet on him to win inside the distance, that pissed me off. Uh, number one, but number two, let's just say, um, you know, from a objective standpoint, like what are you doing extending a fight that should be finished in the first round? He's in a realistic fight. Ian Gary should be finishing Neil Magny in the first round, period. If not in the second round, he should have broken it. He should have taken him to the mat and finished him. And when he did go to the mat in the third round, it looked like he could have passed his guard and finished him anytime he wanted to. But instead, he decides to leg kick him at distance for 15 minutes as hard as he can and just like take the legs out from under him. It was honestly a performance that I found regrettable um, and quite silly. So, Listen, is he a, a talented guy? Yeah, absolutely. Is he skilled? Sure. Is he marketable? I I guess. I mean, there's some marketable components about him. There's some um, promising things about him, right? But I find him a little bit um, grating. The, the more exposure he gets, the more grating he is. Um, you know, he's talking about, I'm going to I'm gonna go out there and wear uh, yellow and green shorts for Brazil. I'm going to represent Brazil. Like, do you want nobody to like you? Do you want to turn your back on on anywhere you're from right now? Um, you know, it's like, it, I, I don't get Ian Gary, you know? Um, 
that not finishing Neil Magny, there's nothing cool about that. There was nothing interesting about that. Um, I thought the performance, like I said, was a disaster for the marketing machine behind him. Everything that's going on in the media in the lead up to this fight, I find it to be a, an embarrassing disaster for him as well. Knocking out Daniel Rodriguez, that's a win that hasn't aged all that great. You know, it, it seems like a guy who's um, maybe hasn't been taking it as serious in the, the most recent block. Um, not trying to take shots there. Kanan uh, Song, you know, a guy who just lost to Kevin Doucette, who's like two fights into his UFC career. You know, uh, Gabe Green, a guy who got knocked out in the first 10 seconds by Brian Battle. Darian Weeks, don't believe he's employed with the company anymore. Jordan Williams, don't believe he's employed with the company. It's like the guys he's beaten haven't been all that good. He's looked good. He's gotten better. But has he looked minus 500 good or whatever he is? I don't know, man. Um, I don't know. I, I think that Ian Gary, for me, he's the, the fighter on this card that I'm approaching with the most skeptical hippo eyes. Former Killcliffe FC guy. Now I don't know where he's training at. And you know who else trains at Killcliffe FC? I do. <laughs> Vicente Luque, guys. So it's like Vicente Luque probably knows a lot of Ian Gary's game. He probably can study for it and try and prepare. If Ian Gary's smart, I think he's going to try and come out here fighting Southpaw um, because I do think that we saw Bilal Muhammad make a simple adjustment and nullify the game of Vicente Luque, right? But if he doesn't do that, if he wants to engage with this guy at distance, Vicente Luque could still send somebody to hell with a counter hook. He's very good at doing it. Uh, and he's also got a, a tremendous front headlock game. So I think that Ian Gary has all the tools to win this fight, but I don't know that he has, um, you know, all the tools to necessarily justify this price. So for me, I do worry about where his head's at. I think that, you know, blocking the people on social media and all this stuff, it does give me a little bit of worry for where his mentality is at coming into this. But we've seen a lot of good things from him in the past. We've seen a lot of good things from him inside the cage. It's a lot of the stuff outside the cage and recently that I haven't liked. Um, you know, that recent performance didn't like. So want to see him get a much better performance here to get back on that Gary bandwagon. But I just, you know, I feel like I need to be sold on Gary again. He's lost my trust um, based on that last performance and based on all the corresponding media bullshit and the circus uh, and the distractions and the, and frankly, the embarrassment. So we wish him the best, but I'm silently rooting for the silent assassin, Vicente Luque. <laughs> I'm half kidding here. I'm always wishing well for my Irish brethren, but if you want to claim Brazil, then we'll claim Brazil, brother, and we'll pick Vicente Luque to knock your ass out. So be careful what you wish for, okay? Because we used to ride for Ian Gary on this show, but now you're um, making us look bad. So go ahead and clean up your act, get a big win, get a big finish, and we'll get back on the train. But right now, the line and the enthusiasm feels a little bit forced to me. So Vicente Luque has a lot of questions to answer. Like I said, the medical stuff, big red flag for me. I'm not endorsing a bet on Luque either, but I'm just saying, I, I have a little bit of skepticism with this price. Next up, we've got the prelim headliner. Short notice, Bryce Thug Nasty Mitchell will be raising his Bible again, and he's thumping it at Josh Emmett, a very scary guy. 18 and four overall as a professional. These are two elite 145 pound fighters. So cheers to that. We got a lot of great action still to talk about. If you haven't already, drop a like on the video and make sure you get subscribed as I take a sip of the old coffee.
And we're back to it, folks. Let's talk about this one. Josh Emmett has absolutely gotten flummoxed his last two fights. Um, you know, I know that the record shows a decision loss against Ilya Teporia. I thought it was irresponsible to let him keep fighting like that. I mean, he got absolutely brutalized in that fight um, at various points. I thought he got beat up pretty bad, took a lot of damage. And God bless him. He's a very tough guy. He always wants to keep pushing through. Uh, he wants to keep the fight going. But I do think that he has incurred so much damage over the course of his career that I question his long-term health um, and, and you know his ability to keep doing this for much longer. Because, again, we talk about this dynamic all the time. I'm not saying older fighters can't win. Of course they can. I'm just saying this is a fact and a reality that over time they are much more likely to get knocked out. And Josh Emmett is 38 years of age in the 145-pound weight class. That's just not a recipe for long-term success. Typically, you know, 145-pound fighters tend to age out at a little bit of a younger age. Um, so Josh Emmett, you know, already anomalous in his longevity in the sport, nine and four in the UFC absolutely nothing to sneeze at. But you could make an argument that he should be 0-3 in his last three fights. He did have a controversial split decision win over Calvin Cater. I bet him that night at plus money. And I said to myself, man, this run for Josh Emmett might be over. You know, he was lucky to get out with this one. And then he gets the title shot against Yair Rodriguez. I bet Yair Rodriguez by knockout felt vindicated in how the fight played out. And Yair Rodriguez tuned him up like an old guitar and absolutely beat the tar out of him. Um, you know, landed so many huge shots there. And granted, Josh Emmett did land a couple big shots of his own. He did have some consequential moments. But when you look at the totality of that fight, he absorbed a metric ton of damage to the body. He had no answer for the kicks. He was getting um, rib roasted. And he also got blasted in the face many times. He got hit with big knees, big kicks. And... Josh Emmett just took a lot of damage. You look at the Shane Burgos fight. He took a ton of damage. The Calvin Cater fight took a lot of damage. The Dan Ige fight. It was a back and forth competitive fight. Mursad Bektich, he got the big win there. That was all the way back in 2019. So you look at this guy. He has not had an easy fight since 2019. He has not had a fight that's not a war since 2019. And he's 38 years of age. He's a style that relies on getting in the pocket and punching and throwing down. He's not that big. Um, and you look at some of these losses, too. The Jeremy Stevens loss, guys, is horrific. Back in 2018, a brutal, brutal knockout. Absolute cheating from Jeremy Stevens. That guy don't care. He'll knee you right in the head on the ground. He will cheat. Uh, but I'm just playing. Uh, in the heat of battle, you can't blame these guys. But I'm just looking at a guy in Josh Emmett who has poured out the jug for greatness many times. And I don't know how much left he has to give. Whereas Bryce Mitchell uh, gave Ilya Teporia, I thought, arguably his hardest fight in the UFC to date while he was sick. Um, went out there, got a takedown, you know, put Ilya Teporia on his back, made him work a little bit, made his cardio get tested. But then Bryce didn't have the cardio to keep it up. And he was taking so much damage that he just he needed out of that fight. But I think that Bryce Mitchell in a rerun could be more competitive and still lose, um, but make Ilya work real hard and, and be an interesting challenger. 
and he does have a fun game. He does have an interesting personality. Listen, I'm not a Bryce Mitchell endorser, right? I'll never go out there and say, Bryce Mitchell, you know, he's a real uh, scholar. You know, you should listen to all his philosophies. But I do think he's an interesting guy. I think he makes MMA more fun. And I also think that he has a really difficult style for guys to deal with. He can grind on you. He can take you down. And when you're thinking about the takedown, just like Tatsuro Tyra, he can come over the top and land big power punches and drop you, just like he did against Edson Barbosa in the first round. It set up that wrestling game. It set up that top time. And Josh Emmett has power. He's got a low center of gravity. He will not be easy to take down. But I think that he can land a couple big shots here. And I also think, um, you know, that he could get to a position where, um, you know, he could make Josh second guess himself, right? Like if you're getting submitted via triangle choke against um, Yair Rodriguez, I do have to question where your grappling defense is at overall. I know he was hurt and rocked in that fight at the time that that took place. But I also know that Bryce Mitchell, very clever, very crafty, and can be a submission ace at his best. So should be a fun fight here. Uh, but Dan Ige is like impossible to finish. I don't think the same is quite true of Josh Emmett. So I think that Josh has a path to winning the fight. But I think that Bryce Mitchell is going to be my pick. And I wouldn't be too surprised if he got it done inside the distance. But on short notice, maybe he'll just be content to try and grind out a decision victory here. Next up, guys, we got a women's bout between Irene Aldana and Carol Hosa. I bet Irene Aldana against Amanda Nunes, and boy, oh boy, that was a square one, fellas uh, and ladies. Appreciate anybody who's here watching it, uh, regardless of gender. But in any case, Irene Aldana just laid an egg, I thought, last time out. Really didn't show up to fight. Um, you know, her corner was on her. Her teammates were on her. Everybody's trying to get her to fight more. And she just didn't want to take the damage. She didn't want to get hurt. You can't really blame her too much. Uh, it's Amanda Nunes, right? She was probably going to mess her up. She was probably going to land huge shots and take her out. But I always say, I can't care more than you, right? Like if you go out there and lose a fight and it matters more to me than it does to you, and I'm willing to go out there and fight for more than you in that moment, you know, that hurts, right? So it just seems to me like um, I can't back a Renee Aldana anymore. You know, um, I've always thought she's had a somewhat negative style. Her grappling is suspect, right? 3-0 and career to the submission. Um, so it doesn't reflect on paper, but she's 3-5 and career to the decision. And I think that that is almost exclusively a function of her inability to keep fights upright um, in her range at the times that she wants to. Holly Holm was running a takedown clinic on her for the duration of their bout, Um and Amanda Nunes probably could have taken her down and done anything she wanted on the ground um, throughout the fight. So I think of, you know, Irene Aldana as a, a fighter with clear weakness. Uh, even the Macy Chason fight that she won, she was in bottom position constantly in that fight, being put in bad spots and could have easily lost a decision, um, you know, if Macy was able to extend her top position and not um, make a horrible mistake. On the other side, Carol Hosa is a prospect that's let us down many times, but her record in decisions, guys, is very shiny. 11 and 3 for WMMA. And that just seems like, you know, a, um, a desirable, you know, younger fighter taking on an older fighter. And she's also got a much better record in decisions. And you'd have to think she's got the better ground game. And she works with D. Gomes, who's her partner. So she's got a UFC training partner who's also her partner in life so you'd have to think that she's got 
pretty solid corner. Parani Valley Tudo, you know, a great gym. Produced the likes of Jessica Andrade, very solid uh, camp. I think that there's a lot to like about Carol Hosa as a potential underdog this weekend because I just don't trust Irene Aldana and what she showed last time out. Does she have knockout power? Yes, she does. And Irene Aldana, um, you know, would be the first person ever knockout Carol Hosa if she's able to do it. So I think that she's got to find a way to finish, um, to win the fight like that, because in decision, she's really struggled. And I do think Carol Hosa could mix in the takedowns. She's got a lower center of gravity. Um, so for me, the the essential question of this fight is, can Carol Hosa get on top? She's let me down in the past. Um, you know, she's had performances where she didn't turn it on until round three when it was too late. But I think in this spot, if she starts early, if she pushes the gas a little bit on Irene Aldana, she could get this fight to the ground and potentially win it. So um, I think Carol Hosa is a live dog in that fight. And I'm, you know, hopeful that Irene Aldana can get back on track. She's a fun fighter, but she could just be a spent force at this point in her career. Um, she's had 21 professional bouts. She's 35 years of age, and she's been toward the mountaintop and got completely exposed in that fight. You know, it's hard to imagine the UFC would ever put her back in a title opportunity, given just how poor that opportunity went. Um, last time out. So maybe she could reestablish herself here with a big win, with a big finish. But I think the UFC is trying to turn the page here personally towards a younger Brazilian contender um, and build up Grasso as their Mexican star, as opposed to, you know, kind of just punting on Irene Aldana as a, a failed experiment along the way. And no harm, no foul there. 35 years of age, maybe she could turn it all around. But I just, I think there's a lot of bullish expectations for a girl who turned in an absolute egg last time. Next up, we've got Cody Garbrandt taking on Brian Boom Kelleher. I did a little bit of Instagram stalking for this fight, guys. Seems like Cody Garbrandt is training with a lot of Ohio wrestling legends. Lance Palmer, Chase Palmy. He's really trying to work on that wrestling craft. And I think that's because last time out against Trevin Jones, we saw he wanted to work more on that wrestling, get the fight to the ground, keep it on the ground and try and build up that cardio base a little bit. Because the truth is, Cody Garbrandt, his chin is just very suspect at this UFC level at this point in his career. Um, you know, he's been knocked out many times. He's been hurt, rocked, wobbled on the feet. Uh, he's been damaged badly by the jab of Rob Font as well. There's just been a lot of damage incurred by Cody Garbrandt from high school football to wrestling to boxing to MMA to the amateurs to the pros. The guy's just been hurt a ton. And it shows, you know, I think he gets rocked and wobbled a lot easier than most of his contemporaries. And I do worry about him here against Brian Boom Kelleher. But I think the UFC was strategic in this matchmaking. Two guys that have dealt with some injuries, some pullouts from fights. And Brian Kelleher, a guy that just got neck surgery as well. So like, yeah, can't be super bullish on either side here. Um, Cody Garbrandt, I think on the ground has a lot of room for improvement still in terms of his jiu-jitsu and his ability to play uh, on the mat. But I do think that his natural wrestling ability can never be denied. His takedowns are beautiful at times. His ability to hit um, that rotating double leg where he just takes somebody up in the air, spins them sideways. He does a very good job of 
rotating to the finish, circling to the finish there. So I think there's a lot to like at times about Garbrandt's wrestling. But Trevin Five Star Jones had him in some compromised grappling positions. I think that we could see more of that in this fight uh, with Boom Kelleher. He's got a great front headlock series. He comes from a pretty seasoned uh, camp here on the Northeast as well. So I think there's a lot of um, variance in a fight like this. You know, two older guys, two guys that are a little bit past their sell-by date for different reasons. Cody's still the younger guy. He's got a better pedigree. But Boom Keller is basically fighting for his UFC career here. Uh, and he's a guy that's dangerous, always has been, and has a fun style. So I think Cody gets the win here. Uh, I think Cody probably wrestles his way to the victory. But I do just have my questions about whether or not Boom's able to connect um, or, or find that submission. So, you know, for me, I, I almost like this fight not to go the distance as well. I know Cody's been wrestling to some decisions before, but Brian in some fights when he ends up on the bottom position for too long and he can't get his offense off, you know, the fight can get away from him a little bit. So maybe Cody's able to find a finish here for the first time in a while. Next up, guys, we've got a interesting scrap in the women's flyweight division. We've got Casey O'Neill, King Casey, returning here to take on Ariane Lipsky. And Casey O'Neill is going to be the bigger fighter here. One inch, uh, or excuse me, two inch reach advantage. She's also three years younger in this spot. But Ariane Lipsky has much more professional experience than Casey O'Neill. She also has more UFC experience. So the differences here are myriad. Uh, last time out, Jennifer Maya was the person who claimed the O of Casey O'Neill, right? She was able to get that victory, stop the undefeated streak of Casey O'Neill that had lasted since her amateur days um, when she had lost her first two amateur fights, both via TKO, both in the first round. And then she was able to rattle off four victories, come to the professional ranks, rattle off more victories, get to the UFC. And now it seems like the rubber kind of met the road in that Jennifer Maya fight. She tore her ACL. She had to pull out of a fight. She then accepted that fight with Jennifer Maya. And she looked slow. She looked a little bit reactive. Um, you know, she did not look to be quite as physical uh, as she was before. So it does lead to some questions for me here. Let's start with question number one. What is Casey O'Neill going to look like in this fight? You know, is she going to look like herself? Is she going to be more spry? Is she going to be more physical? I'm going to seek out footage of her training and see if I can see her moving and if she's moving around well or if she looks like she's struggling. I think that another important note here is that on the other side, uh, Ariane Lipsky has been TKO'd many times, and we know that Casey O'Neill has finishing instincts. We've seen that from her in the UFC, finishes at a higher rate uh, than the average woman by far. Um, and we've seen not very talented fighters, uh, with all due respect, like Antonina Shevchenko, Montana De La Rosa, get finished victories, TKOs in the second round. Uh, we've seen... Earlier in her career, she suffered a TKO loss against Diane Firmino. She suffered a TKO loss in the first round against Priscilla Cachoeira. So Lipsky has been a little bit chinny uh, by WMMA standards. She's been ground pounded. She's been knocked out standing. Um, and she's been dominated in the wrestling and grappling at times. So I think that her wrestling and grappling is a negative quality. Uh, but she is technically 3-0 career to the sub. She does have a win via sub in the UFC. That meme knee bar on Luana Santos, or uh, Luana Carolina, excuse me. Luana Santos just fought this weekend. But in any case, um, you know, I do think Casey O'Neill 
probably has a higher ceiling to look good in this fight. Um, but I just don't know what to make of it. So not super bullish on this fight. Going to lean ever so slightly with Casey O'Neill. Um, what I think makes it really interesting, though, is just the fact that both these women are very violent, you know, and we don't often see a lot of finishes in WMMA, but when you have two violent women, um, I think that that could lead to a lot of finishes. And Jennifer Maya wasn't the right dance partner for Casey O'Neill because she's not violent in that way. She's much more calculated, picks her spots, and is looking to outpoint you. And so Jennifer Maya was let go from the company, unfortunately, even though she's a former title challenger, even though she just beat the girl who's fighting on the card tonight, it's because she's kind of boring and doesn't really press her advantage. The opposite is true of Casey O'Neill. So if she gets one more win here, they'll try and start pushing her right back up the card again. And for Ariane Lipsky, she'll be on a nice little streak here of three wins in a row. If she's able to get one over on Casey O'Neill, and that will get her eligible for a step up in competition as well. So either way, both these ladies, a lot on the line, should be a high motivation spot. And I'm hoping for violence here because I'm not super bullish on the sides. Next up, guys, we've got a light heavyweight bout. This one is going to be between Alonzo Atomic Menafield and Dustin the Hanyak Jacoby. And this is a fun fight because you got two guys that primarily like to go out there and strike, but Alonzo Menafield at times has been, you know, working in that wrestling game in recent performances, you know, taking fights to the ground, beating people up if he can, or like he did last time out, getting that submission against uh, Jimmy Crute, you know, submission via rear, or excuse me, via guillotine choke. He has a Von Flu choke against Fabio Chiron in 2021 as well. Um, and this is a guy that in his uh, LFA days got a rear naked choke in the first round against Bryce Ratani Co. Um, so this is a guy with many, you know, ground finishes, right? Even the Askar Moseroff finish, another ground and pound finish. We've seen that Alonzo Menafield likes to take fights to the ground and get on top. I think that's his best path to victory in this fight. You know, I think on the feet at distance, you have to favor the glory kickboxer in Dustin Jacoby because he's been very durable throughout the course of his career, 12-1 and career to the knockout prop um, as a professional MMA fighter. And he's fought some heavy-handed guys, some very serious power threats like Kennedy and Zechku, Asmat Mirzakhanov, Khalil Roundtree, Daun Jung, Mihal Oleksaychuk, and Iwan Kutalaba. And Iwan Kutalaba was able to rock him a little bit, uh, but he was able to deal with that. Maxime Grishin, another guy, big guy, was able to deal with that. So I really rate uh, the chin that we've seen from Dustin Jacoby in his recent performances. It could get cracked here. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think he's a chinny guy per se. Uh, he's one and two career to the sub, but most of his sub losses are old. You know, he hasn't been submitted since 2015. He hasn't been submitted in the UFC since, get this, 2012, back in his first UFC run. So Dustin Jacoby been, you know, difficult to finish now for quite some time in MMA. But I also believe that this is a high variance fight. You've got two guys that are explosive. They can go out there and they've proven they can get wins, knockouts in the first round. But I think the defining factor between these two guys could be the fact that we've always seen Alonzo Menafield slow down. Losing to William Knight, unacceptable to me. That third round looked absolutely disgusting. Um, you know, Jimmy Crute, the draw in that spot, I don't think that's a great look for Alonzo either. And then on top of that, um, you know, Askar Moseroff, a little bit fraudulent. Fabio Chiron, a little bit undersized. Ed Herman, ancient, didn't finish him. Misha Serkinov, um, you know, very uh, lacking for durability. 
Ovin St. Preux, over the hill, knocked him out brutally in the second round. Devin Clark, never that great a fighter in my humble opinion, um, and beat him the unanimous decision. So I have a lot of questions about Alonzo Menafield. At his best, knocked out Paul Craig in the first round, right? Like he could be dangerous. He could be good. Uh, he has some skill, but at his worst, he can make boneheaded decisions. He can lose to guys way worse than Dustin Jacoby. So I don't want to pay the huge shock price, but I think Dustin Jacoby wins here. I think he probably gets the knockout, um, but I think there's a chance it could be a decision as well. And if I was to bet on Alonzo Menafield, I would be thinking about sprinkling the sub prop here uh, to get tricky because I do think that Alonzo Menafield would be smart to take this fight to the ground, mix it up. He is actually the older fighter in this spot, but their virtual age parity between these two guys, uh, Jacoby's going to be a little bit taller. They're at uh, reach parity as well. These are two similarly sized guys, but I think the skill on the feet is there for Dustin Jacoby. I think the power is there for Alonzo Menafield. Fun fight, fun scrap, but ABC say always been on cardio. And I do think that Dustin Jacoby is the more uh, well-conditioned athlete of these two. So I'm going to lean with Dustin Jacoby, but I am not as bullish as the minus two XX price tag. Next up, guys, we got Tagir Ulanbekov taking on Cody Durden. And this is a fight that I've been giving a lot of thought to because I find it to be a tricky fight. You know, on the one hand, Cody Durden does strike me as a potential live underdog. He trains out of American top team. Um, he's a guy that's gotten much better over the course of his recent fights. We've seen that Cody Durden used to be a lot more liable to getting submitted. He used to be a lot more liable to getting knocked out. He used to have worse cardio. And his cardio has improved. His ability to fight through adversity has improved. His wrestling and his grappling transitions have improved. All of that has gotten better. But he's still a guy that can slow down in that third round. He's still a guy that can be put in compromised positions. He was nearly submitted by Jake Hadley, found a way to fight through it, be tough, be gritty, um, do his thing. But he fought just three months ago. He had his arms stretched real bad in that spot. Now he's getting back in there with Tagiru and Bekov. And Tagiru and Bekov fought one year ago, got the standing submission rear, or excuse me, uh, I keep doing that for whatever reason, guys. Standing guillotine choke. Every time I see guillotine, I'm saying rear naked choke today. Um, I have jujitsu dyslexia right now. Uh, excuse me. And I don't mean to make light of that either. But in any case, we've got Tagiru and Bekov. 32 years of age, just like Cody Durden. So they're at age parity. They're at height parity. He's going to have the three-inch reach advantage in this spot, 70 inches to just 67 for Durden. But Tagiru Lombekov, what he brings to the table is a tricky submission game. Uh, we saw that last time against Nate Maness. I bet him ITD. I bet him by knockout because Nate Maness uh, was cutting a ton of weight, cutting down to flyweight. And, you know, we did see that Ulambekov has withdrawn from a lot of fights, only one of them officially for an injury concern, but he's withdrawn from like six fights in the UFC. So I don't know if this guy's just like busy all the time or like not that into it, or he's got a lot of other things going on, or he's got visa problems. I don't know what's going on with Tagir, but he just gets pulled from a lot of fights. So that for me, a little bit of a red flag. Uh, Cody Durden though says yes to every fight and that could be a blessing and a curse, right? It could be a detriment to your career. It could cost you um, opportunities if you end up losing any of these fights along the way. This does seem like he's taking on a tough but winnable fight against Tagir. I think that the biggest problem for Cody could be if he gasses out in this fight. You know, think about um, a matchup between Saeed Yakub Kakramanov and Saeed Nurmagomedov. Saeed Yakub was a clearly better wrestler 
And I would argue the better grappler overall, he was taking him down. He was riding out good positions, but one mistake, he gets caught in that ninja choke and the fight's over shortly thereafter. I think that's a very live possibility here as well. We just saw his his capability to get that guillotine choke in the last fight. People always mock the guillotine choke. Pulling guard with the guillotine can be foolish, but getting a guillotine choke is one of the smartest things you could do oftentimes uh, to defend takedowns because it puts people under duress. And, uh, you know, it also can turn into a fight ending sequence in an instant, right? One change of angle, one, uh, you know, compression of their neck against the cage, somebody's tapping right there. So I just think that Tagiru and Bekov is a dangerous guy. I think Cody Durden is a little less dangerous with the submissions. Five and three career to the submission for Cody Durden, uh, as opposed to eight no career to the submission for Tagir Ulanbekov. So obviously Durden has been a lot more liable to getting submitted, and he's also been a guy that's been securing fewer subs. So I think that when I'm looking at this matchup, if Ulanbekov wins, I'm expecting him to get it done probably by submission. Uh, or decision, you know, a hard-fought decision. Whereas I think that Cody Durden, his path is to probably win this uh, via TKO over a guy that's been damaged before into Guru and Bekov, no losses or wins by TKO. But he's been hurt before. He's been put in some uncomfortable-looking situations. Um, the Alan Nascimento fight, um, I think, is an example, right? Split decision there, tough fight for him, uh, hard, gritty pace. And Alan Nascimento is not really a guy that's going to make you pay as much with the striking. Uh, and I do think that Nate Maness had a terrible weight cut that first time down to flyweight. I think he looks a lot better now. Um, so I'd, I'd be curious to see how that looked in a rerun at some point as well. But overall, 6-2 and two career record to the decision for Tagiro and Bekov. That's pretty impressive stuff in its own right. And 5-1 and one for Cody Durden. So these are two guys the judges like. They like their style. Um, and neither one of them has lights out cardio. So for me, seems like a little bit of a toss-up. But... Overall, I'm going to edge ever so slightly to Tagir as the more dangerous guy, but I still think that the odds might be slightly off here. Next up, guys, we have a flyweight, or excuse me, a featherweight matchup between Andre Touchy Feely and Lucas Almeida. This should be a fun fight, and it could be a potential loser leaves town fight uh, for these guys because both of them have had some mixed results. Um, we saw Almeida get signed to the UFC despite coming off of a loss on Contender Series. A great fight against Daniel Zellhuber, undefeated, highly touted prospect at the time. So he lost that fight. They still, um, you know, had their eye on him. He gets a win in jungle fight via submission, and boom, it's right into the UFC. So cheers to him for getting the call. And then he gets the win, cashes me two nice tickets. I had him on the money line plus 190. I had him ITD plus 400 against Mike Trezano, and he was able to get the stoppage there via knockout in a back-and-forth war of a fight. Trezano landed big shots, dropped him, hurt him with some big stuff, but Lucas Almeida showed he's got the heart, the willingness to fight through some adversity, came back, got the knockdown, got the win. When you look at Andre Touchy-Feely, he's a guy that has really struggled, in my opinion, uh, to separate himself from his opponents in the UFC. What do I mean by that? He's fighting the close and competitive decisions. He's seven and five career to the decision uh, in the UFC, but his two most recent wins uh, in the UFC by decision were both splits over Bill Algeo and Charles Air Jourdain. When you look back, he also had split decisions in 2018 against Michael Johnson and Dennis Bermudez. He had... Um, 
I think all unanimous decisions the rest of the way out, but that's four fights that went to split decision uh, just since 2018. That's a lot. Uh, also a guy that has lost a lot of decisions close. Um, you know, he did lose a split decision to Michael Johnson. He won the split decision against Dennis Bermudez. Um, but a lot of his decisions have been disputed one way or the other. He was a big favorite against Calvin Cater in Cater's UFC debut. He lost that one. He got head kicked and knocked out by uh, Yair Rodriguez. He got submitted back in 2015 by of Pepe back when I was first watching the UFC uh, and absolutely loving it. So when I think about a guy like Andre Feely, he's been around forever, but he's always been just a little bit average you know he's 10 and 9 in the ufc with one no contest and i just think that his danger factor isn't quite where it needs to be um you know before a guy like uh lucas almeida who's highly dangerous right like you look at lucas almeida he's only had one fight ever go the distance he did lose that fight and it was to daniel Huber, but a close competitive fight where he started to gas out because he tried to kill the guy in the first round He's got five wins by submission, one loss by a submission. That was his last time out against Pat Sabatini. And guys, Pat Sabatini is a great grappler. When he's able to get the fight to the ground, he's a great grappler. He wasn't able to get it to the ground against Diego Lopes. And Diego Lopes showed size matters. He was bigger. He was stronger. He was more physical. And he tested the durability of Pat Sabatini, which has never been great. And the theory for Lucas Almeida last time was if he can test the chin, then he can you know, capitalize. But he wasn't able to test the chin, right? He got taken down and he got beaten up. You guys can go watch that yourself. It was an assault by Pat Sabatini. He was 10 steps ahead on the ground. He was too good. He was too uh, smart. And he just landed a lot of damage quickly, uh, overwhelmed the guy completely, and then got the finish there with the arm triangle choke. There was nothing that um, Lucas Almeida could have done about that. So when I evaluate this fight, it seems fairly straightforward to me. Lucas Almeida is not very good on the ground. He's got good offense on the ground, but his defense on the ground is very suspect for the UFC level based on what we've seen so far. He's given up takedowns. He's given up bad positions in these fights, and Pat Sabatini ran through him like it was a um, marathon, right? When I'm looking at a guy like Andre Feely, I think that Feely is a fun guy. I think that he is a fan favorite. I think he's got a fun, interesting style. And he puts on the kicks and the punches and, and fun strikes. But I think if he decides to keep this on the feet with Lucas Almeida, he's probably going to get buzzed and knocked out here. Joe Anderson Brito made me a ton of coins when I faded Andre Feely plus 250 in that spot. Obviously, the line is not as big here. Um, and I think that, you know, Joe Anderson Brito is a more well-rounded fighter. So that's a lot more bullish on that plus money price. Um, but when I'm looking at this, I just say to myself, Andre Feely has a clear path to taking this fight to the ground and submitting this guy. Because Bill Algeo is a legit black belt and he's difficult to get out of there. And so Andre Feely took his back and couldn't finish. But if he was able to take this guy's back, I think he could finish. Based on what we've seen from Almeida, his defense is lacking. But I also think that if Almeida keeps his fight on the feet, he is very live to knock out Andre Feely. I think he throws with more power. I think he throws with more bad intention. I think he's a little bit fresher in his career, despite being similar in age. So for me... I'm going to lean towards Lucas Almeida getting the job done here, uh, probably via TKO. But I think that it could be anybody's fight. And I think if Andre Philly fights smart, then he should win this fight by submission. But I just have a bad feeling that he's going to go out there, stand and bang, trade in front of a you know lit crowd, if you will. And uh, I just don't think that's going to end well for him.
Next up, guys, we got the heavyweights, the big boys. If you're enjoying the show so far, uh, I appreciate it. Make sure that you drop your comments below if you have more to say about the fights, if you have thoughts, if you have questions, comments, or concerns. If you want more information from me, all my information is down in the description box below. That's Patreon. That's the Lab VIP. That's all the services that I help contribute to, including with my guy, Luca Fury, as well. So if you're interested in any of that, go ahead and look down below. But otherwise, we got two great fights left to break down in this card. We still got a lot of great people rocking with us live in the chat, including my guy, MMA Line Mover, constant guest on the show, our friend Zach. So appreciate you being here, brother, and appreciate everybody who's still rocking with us at almost 1 a.m. Eastern time local. So let's finish out strong with Shamil Gazayev taking on Martin Buddy Budai, and I got to do a little bit of victory lapping on the Shamil Gazayev fight because I, I really was proud of myself, guys. I called that fight down to a T. I said to take the ends by sub. I said to take the Gazayev by sub, and we basically saw the fight play out exactly like that. Greg Velasco, not a slouch on the mat. For a big guy, can move, can be fast, can execute, has a, a diligent and well-thought-out game from the bottom position for heavyweight. However. Shamil Gazayev, I just thought had more athletic upside. I thought he was a little bit more, um, you know, of a physical presence. I thought he could do more damage to Velasco. And we saw that's how it played out. You know, he damaged him on the feet, got the fight to the ground. But when the fight was on the ground, he had a moment of diciness, right? He gave up that bad position. Velasco pops out on his back, but then he's able to recover. He's able to get his spot and he's able to get the finish. So I think of this guy, Shamil Gazayev, as an interesting you know, challenge for uh, a fighter, right? He's 33 years of age, not a young guy, but this is heavyweight, right? You don't have to be young. So he's getting into this uh, at the right time. You know, he's got 11 professional bouts, similar amount as Martin Budai, but obviously Budai has been having these fights at a little bit of a higher level in the UFC. But you look at the quality of names on the resume, it's not great, right? He hasn't been fighting great fighters. When you look at the guys that Shamil Gazayev's fought, he fought Greg Velasco last time out, solid win, an undefeated fighter at the time. Darko Stosic, um, you know, a guy that had fought in the UFC, wasn't great, but was a UFC-level fighter, got the win over him as well, does have one win via decision, um, and has some amateur experience as well. So this is not a guy that is, you know, new to the fight game, but he did start in volleyball. Believe it or not, he was on the Dagestan national volleyball team. And Abdulmanap Nurmagomedov recruited him to do MMA. He started doing martial arts, never looked back. Now he's training at KHK by Rain. Uh, and this is a team that seems uh, well-funded, well-put together. So I don't really feel interested in fading them. But on the other side, Martin Budai has looked very good in his UFC run. He's done everything that's been asked of him. He's gone out there and got the wins. He got the win on Contender Series via finish, got three decisions in a row over Barnett, Brzezeski, and Collier. And then last time out, he got that Kimura finish over uh, Josh Parisian, and I called him by sub or decision in that fight. You know, I felt like he had the, all the tools to win that. And I bet him by sub against Brzezki back in the day as well. This is a guy who's a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu who – can have multiple paths to victory, right? He can hold people against the fence. He can beat people up with more volume on the feet. Technically, he can knock people out as he did against Lorenzo Hood. And uh, I think he really hurt Chris Barnett as well, hitting him with those knees to the body. But also he can win fights via submission. He's kind of limited in his top game. He mostly likes to go for that Kimura series. But if he's able to take the back, then I do think he could offer a lot of threats to Shamil Gazayev that could potentially you know, give him problems. 
Shamil Gazayev is not tested deep into fights many times in his career. So obviously cardio is a question mark for him. I do think he looked extremely tired. Shout out to my guy, Moyes Audio, another friend of the show, a guy who's constantly in the comment section. And Moyes Audio pointed out, um, you know, via videos on his social media, that this guy after Contender Series was <laughs> huffing and puffing so bad. And it was a two and a half minute fight. You know, he got the finish really early. I do think there's something to be said for being in a dangerous position where another guy's on your back and causing that panic to set in, causing that fatigue. Um, and it's also heavyweight, right? Two big guys moving around like that. But I do think that Kazayev could gas out here. And Boudet seems like a guy who's very poised and very in control of himself. So potentially that's why you're seeing an undefeated fighter here at plus money on uh, the Kazayev side. But I think that somebody could get submitted in this fight. Um, you know, I think both these guys are very dangerous by traditional standards for heavyweight grappling. And most of the time, heavyweights don't know their ass from their elbow on the ground. Let's just call a spade a spade. And uh, these two guys actually know what they're doing. So I do think it could be interesting transitions on the ground. And the one thing that struck me last time out is because I have said, you know, um, you know, it kind of disrespected Velasco, but he basically said, you know, when this guy had my back, I wasn't worried at all because I know that all my training partners are way better than him. Uh, and they always have my back and I do okay. So I do think that Gazayev has been in some bad positions and knows how to survive. I think he's training with a good team. So I think he's going to present himself well here. But against uh, you know a tough guy who's got more UFC ex experience and seasoning in front of a big crowd, I think it's anybody's ball game. But for me, I I'm ever so slightly uh, leaning towards Gazayev in the early going. Um, but I, I do think, like I said, path to uh, Boudet coming on late. Um, and I think either guy by sub makes some sense to me. Last but not least, folks, we've got to talk about Randy Brown and Muslim Salikov. One thing I thought was funny is that if you round, you know, just like basic rounding, both these guys actually have a similar um, ends inside the distance rate in the UFC, right? Both these guys, about 56% of the time, their fights are ending inside the distance. And I do think there's a decent enough chance that we could see it end inside the distance, um, you know, at a, at a, you know, decent clip on Saturday, right? Why do I think that? I mean, Randy Brown is the guy that hasn't always been a potent finisher at the UFC level, but a lot of times guys are just trying to kick the leg out from under him and it prevents him from planting with a lot of weight on his boxing strikes. Um, also, you know, if guys are able to compete with him in the wrestling and the grappling, that really limits part of his offense that can be very dynamic. He's got long limbs and he can use that to leverage crazy submissions like the one-arm rear naked choke that we saw um, against Alex Cowboy Oliveira. So I think of this as a fight where Randy Brown is being set up to win. Uh, it doesn't mean that he will win, but it does seem like that's what's happening in this spot. He's a younger fighter. He's a little more marketable. And the, the fact is he's fallen on some grenades for the UFC, right? You look at his career. He fought Jack Della Maddalena, guy on the come up. Nobody wanted to fight him. He fought Vicente Luque when Vicente Luque was the death dealer of the division that I described earlier. He fought Nico Price, who's a tricky enough matchup, but obviously one that they thought he was going to win. Uh, and Bilal Muhammad, you know, a guy who's been on an insane run in this welterweight division, a very tough out for anybody. So he's not losing to bums or scrubs or anything like that. Randy Brown, 11 and five overall in the promotion and his worst loss 
is to uh, Nico Price. And it was via meme-like knockout from the top position. So I think Randy Brown has a questionable chin. I think he's susceptible to being knocked out. And I do think that Muslim Salikov's best path is to knock out Randy Brown. He's the king of Kung Fu. He's a dangerous striker. He's got an absolutely incredible um, spinning. Yeah, exactly. Cheeky elbow is spot on. Uh, His ribs better watch out for those four or five spins of death. He has an incredible spinning kick. He's got good power on his boxing as well. But Salikov is a guy that's very limited and his cardio is starting to fall apart because he's 39 years of age, right? We talk about it all the time. The things that break down as you get older, the chin, the durability, and the cardio, the ability to push for that full 15-minute pace. And I do think that's what's been costing Muslim Salikov some of his recent performances. He is one and two in his last three fights. His only win in that time is over Andre Fialho, a very chinny fighter. It took him until round three to get him out of there in that spot. A little bit concerning. He did get knocked out by the leech. That was a 10-unit max bet for me on the leech. I thought it was an insane price. It was the bigger, younger, more marketable guy who had more power, who had more pass to the finish at a big plus money price, plus 150. Had to take that, had to maximize that opportunity. Now, Randy Brown, who I would argue is a chinnier fighter, um, you know, with a little bit more question marks and a little bit less momentum, um, is at minus two XX. But I think he probably is going to get the win here. No fighter since I think Ricky Rainey has been this big compared to Muslim Salikov. Like Muslim Salikov's way smaller than this guy compared to most fighters he's fought. And that was back in 2018. Um, you know, and I do think Randy Brown, this is the biggest height and reach advantage he's had over any opponent in the UFC. He's normally the bigger guy. This is the biggest he's been relative to an opponent in the UFC. Um, so I think that Randy Brown in this spot, if he's smart, is going to take this fight to the ground. Muslim Salikov is a guy that is known for being the king of Kung Fu, this, that, and the other, but he got submitted via rear naked choke against Alex uh, Garcia back in the day. And I think that, um, you know, that is the path, right? A lot of these guys he's fought have been very small, have been primary strikers. I think that Randy Brown should take this guy to the ground and use his length to submit him. I think that's the ultimate path um, for Randy here. And I think that odds makers respected that as well. On the offshore market, you could see that in how they open this. Um, so I'll be curious how domestics approach this fight. Um, but there you have it, guys. We have all the fights in the books for UFC 296. I appreciate each and every one of you guys who's been rocking with me from the very beginning. Um, this is, I believe, the last UFC event of the calendar year. I want to double check that. Uh, UFC card. Um, so let me just see UFC 296. Yeah, I think this is the last one of the year guys. So I want to just say, um, thank you to everybody who's been rocking with me since the beginning of the year. Thank you to everybody who's been rocking with me since the beginning of this journey on YouTube. Thank you to everybody who's been rocking with me at any point along the way. I really appreciate it guys. Uh, the housekeeping that I want to do before we get out of here is to let you guys know the podcast has been a little bit spotty in terms of getting up on podcasts in a timely fashion. I've been extremely busy. It's the holiday season, all these things. No excuses this week. I'm getting everything up. I'm getting it up tonight. Uh, so I really appreciate everybody that supports me on podcasts. If you enjoy the show, if you get value from it, um, if you don't want to deal with the ads, if, if that's something that's important to you. I put on an ad-free version of the product on podcasts. All I ask is that you please just support it by giving a five-star review, letting other people know about the show. It really helps me uh, grow. 
Also, in terms of my YouTube presence, guys, I'm trying to make um, you know a, a completely distinct presence from what I do on social media. Um, just learning more about the algorithm. I I've realized like I've been hurting myself over time by constantly tweeting out links to my videos. I will always let people know when I post new videos, but the bottom line is the easiest way to find my stuff on YouTube is to subscribe to me on YouTube, to hit that notification bell. If you want to make sure that when I'm going live, uh, that after I posted a video that you get notified about it, uh, you could turn it on for live streams only as well, um, which I think would be the the value add. I do post you know video clips from this show. I don't want to bombard you with notifications every time I post one of those. But if you just want to know, hey, he's about to go live. If you want to contribute questions, comments in the show, in the live chat, join the sharpest chat in the game. Like our guy, Cheeky Elbow. Like our guy, MMA Line Mover. Like our guy, Colostrum. Um, we really appreciate the support uh, and the interaction and the feedback, guys. I try and go through and comment back to people that comment on the show each and every week. I really appreciate that. Uh, from you guys, the feedback, if you have thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, things that you want to see more from the channel, go ahead and let me know those as well. Cause we are going to have a little free time, right? A little bit of time between those UFC fights. And I already have some stuff planned, but I already, uh, you know, am seeking out that feedback from you guys as well. Anything that you guys want to talk about over the holiday season, anything you want to discuss, um, we'll get that done. Make sure that you still have some fights in your life as the MMA calendar comes to a little bit of a slowdown. So Thank you guys so much. We are not coming to that slowdown until after Saturday night. So we will be back 100% um, to talk on Thursday for bets and banter. So until that time, God bless you all. I hope that you come back and enjoy it all again. And we got plenty more to talk about. So we'll see you guys again on the other side. Have a great night. Until next time.